Part 1. Chapter 5 of Israel's Faith, a series of lessons for the Jewish youth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Man and His Position If I ask you what you are, you will reply a human being, and you will feel a sensation of pride in the knowledge that you are superior to the handsomest bird that soars through the skies, and nobler than the noblest beast that roams through the forests. And indeed you are, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air have no speech. The wild beast roars ever the same note, the birds sing ever the same tune. Their enjoyments are few, because their wants are few. They live, they eat, they drink, they sleep, they bring forth young, they die. That is the life history of every bird, beast, reptile, and fish, since the creation till the present day. There has been no improvement, no progress. The bird builds its nest today precisely as birds did 5,000 years ago. But with you, how different? You have speech, the power of conveying your thoughts, your feelings, and your wishes to those around you. Your voice is unlike any other voice in creation. What varieties of feeling it can express. With it you may laugh or you may cry. With it you may indicate your admiration or your disgust, your love, your pity, or your scorn. The same words spoken in different tones will have different meanings. Then think of the music of the voice. The cuckoo never tires of her two notes and knows no others. The nightingale, with a voice of wider range, yet only knows one song. But man can do much more. He can combine his notes without limit and make sweet music to echo every thought, as many songs as thoughts, without number. Then reflect upon your face. You may be plain or handsome, it matters not. There is that in your face which is a treasure beyond price, the power of expression. The voice utters words, but it is the face which speaks. The voice of pity is sweet but how much more eloquent the pitying look, the moist eye, the face alight with sympathy. The voice of anger is terrible, but what are its effects without the flaming eye, the pouting lips, the distended nostrils, the flushed countenance? And think of the form of man. He is the only animal that stands naturally upright. Some animals, it is true, from their habit of climbing, assume something like the erect attitude but it is always forced and unnatural, and the creature seems to be glad to walk on all its legs again. Those long forelegs, which as they swing gracelessly by the monkey's side, seem to try to make us believe that they are arms, soon drop listlessly to the ground. The legs will be legs. The animal must walk bent to the earth. Even the gorilla, that nearest approach to man, though his strength is enormous, soon becomes fatigued when it walks in an erect position. The beast looks downward, man looks upwards. There is something noble in the appearance of even the meanest man. But man has qualities which are wholly absent in the brute creation. He alone has the gift of reason. Some have maintained that the brute shares this gift with man, but only in a less degree, and that what we call instinct is but a low kind of reason. But it matters little by what name we call it. We know full well that the most sagacious brute never does anything which could indicate reasoning. Its senses are keen, and it readily distinguishes 
friend from foe its appetites are keen and its senses guide the creature to the means of satisfying its cravings it has likes and dislikes memory hatred of a foe and gratitude to a benefactor but in spite of its experience and memory it shows no increase of intelligence after it has once reached maturity man alone progresses he does not accept the position in which he is born as a fate his free will gives him the power of bettering his condition no man is ever truly contented the striving for something higher is the blessed distinction of our race without it we would settle down in life like the beasts of the forest careless of the future indifferent to improvement the desire of improvement spurs to healthy action gives a relish to the duties of life and bids us try to leave the world better than we have found it the desire of improvement does not end here it gives birth to that noblest of all desires the hope of a future life and here again you feel the proud position of man you feel that you have a soul within you a spirit which can never perish which must live when your body will have decayed and crumbled into dust you feel that it is this soul that sets in motion all your thoughts your feelings your reasoning your judgment and all the powers of your mind you feel that it is this soul that bids you improve that makes you dissatisfied even with the greatest worldly happiness that tells you that the fullness of happiness is in a world beyond this if there were need to prove that the soul is immortal you could not have a better proof than your own hopes the hopes of all men surely god whose greatest attribute is kindness would not have breathed into man so noble a hope and so holy an aspiration without giving him the means of realizing them the soul must be immortal because an all-merciful creator has bid us hope for immortality we know that everything in creation has an object and purpose if there be no hereafter for man what is the object what is the purpose of his life surely not the objects and purposes he attains in this world take for example the life of a poor laboring man he works hard all the days of his life and all his wages are a morsel of bread his few enjoyments few comforts and the older he gets the more difficult he finds it to earn a living the more burdensome his existence becomes perhaps he is more fortunate than such men usually are perhaps as he grows old his children love honor and cherish him and he has few troubles to weigh down his hoary head but however fortunate the lot of such a man as he grows older he will find in the world fewer and fewer attractions everything becomes irksome he used to like the music of children's voices he cannot bear it now he used to like a nice gossip with his neighbors he does not care for it now for his tongue is sluggish and his memory fails him he used to like to read what was going on in the world but now he can read no more his sight is too weak and if anyone reads to him he is nervous ask him what would you like my good old man and he will reply nothing thank you let me sit quietly in my old armchair next next a roaring fire let me sit there quietly doing nothing only thinking can this be the end for which this good man has been laboring hard all his life take another case take for example the life of a great statesman has worked very hard for the public good early and late he has labored to improve the condition of his fellow creatures 
suppose the most favorable state of things. His services have been successful, and have been fully valued. The nation honors him, the great men of the earth court him, and people say he is one of the greatest men of the age, and he has a loving family, who almost adore him. As for riches, he has more than he can ever care to increase. What more can he have of the good things of this world? And yet, though this great man has attained the summit of his worldly ambition, he is not happy. He is growing very old. He cannot help himself. He can scarcely walk. He goes to the Senate, the scene of his former triumphs, and people listen to a tremulous voice from lips which used to pour forth fervid eloquence. And as they listen, fondly catching every syllable, they mutter to themselves, what a wonderful old man, but how different from what he was. And then he knows himself how he has changed. He sees that the words of younger men have greater weight than his. So he enjoys the world no more. Day by day he becomes weaker. Even his high position weighs heavily upon him, bringing him responsibilities which he is too weak to bear. What can he do but follow the example of the poor laborer? and sit quietly by the fireside, musing on the past. And can this be the end for which this great and noble old man has been laboring hard all his life? Impossible. There must be a higher end in a world beyond this. There must be an existence in a future state where the worker of good meets an eternal reward. But you must know that the majority of the human race are not so fortunate as the two men of whom we spoke. We are not all born to a happy life, not all destined to be heroes. For many, life is almost a struggle for existence. And what of them whose happiness is checkered with many misfortunes, and whose worldly hopes are seldom half fulfilled? Surely the aims and objects of their lives are not to be found in this world. And worldly happiness is, at best, but a very partial kind of happiness. One man longs to attain riches, and thinks he will have arrived at the summit of happiness if he becomes a rich man. He works hard and becomes rich, and when he is rich, do you think he has attained happiness? Another man longs for knowledge, a more worthy longing. He studies hard, he travels, he searches for truth everywhere, he becomes a very learned man, and when he has acquired all his knowledge, what is his happiness? He is the small gratification of feeling that he knows a little more than his fellow creatures, but he has learned, among other things, the humiliating fact that the more knowledge he has acquired, the more extensive has the field of knowledge become to him. The more he explores, the greater the extent of unexplored territory that rises before him. And so, with the object of every earthly hope, every earthly ambition that we foster in our hearts. It looks beautiful, it seems perfect happiness at a distance, but when attained there seems always something wanting to make the happiness complete. We always crave for something more. What does all this show? Does it not distinctly indicate that if happiness be the wages for toil, our wages are not paid in this world? Does not the very fact that our powers of enjoying worldly pleasures diminish as we grow older, plainly indicate that the great storehouse of happiness is in a future world? Yes. Wherever we look, we see facts which point clearly to the conclusion that 
this life is a preparation for another life that happiness may certainly be found on earth but that perfect happiness cannot be attained in this life that we are constituted to improve that we are placed here to improve and that our improvement leads to our happiness that this world is a world of work but the real wages will be paid in a world beyond this end of part one chapter five